thing because she forgot the title of my book, but I forgot it first. <laughs> she asked me what it was, and I said, and I don't remember. <laughs> and she just let me know that this talk is supposed to be 55 minutes. So it's going to be 55 minutes. I'm going to make sure. So if it seems a little bit fast, feel free at the end to come back to something. So a little bit of a background into why this topic particularly interests me and has to do with my own kind of faith journey. When I was 19, 18 I guess, I went off to college and I was almost positive that the church was a power-hungry European institution made of totally white guys out to oppress everyone, gain power, and impose their wills. I was almost positive that was the case. And I was pretty sure they were totally disconnected from anything that mattered on the ground. People's lives, their concerns, their lack of resources, anything. They were trying to teach people to like, just love the next world and screw whatever happens here, right? I was almost positive that was all true. And then I took Catholic social thought, and I realized I didn't know what the I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I hate that when you're really sure you're right, and then you read something and you find out you're wrong. <laughs> Happens to me a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I, what I learned in Catholic social thought was in part, if I really wanted to help people, if I really wanted to meet them where they were, if I really wanted to serve them, I had to love God, and I had to be holy. I was like, well, I want to help people. I want to help them where they are, so I guess I better get holy. Cheers. <laughs> so I moved personally from Catholic social thought to the rest of the faith, right? Many of you are probably securely within the faith and are wondering where Catholic social thought fits there. So I'm going to try in this talk to go from the rest of the faith, from a love of God, to Catholic social thought. But you can just as easily go the other way, as the way I went. One caveat before I begin with the boring stuff is one of the biggest lies our culture tells us, especially in Catholic social thought in these relations, is that there are left and right Catholics. That there are progressive and traditional Catholics. This is a very deep lie. And it's something we all believe in part. There is one Catholicism to which we are all united. We have to remember that, right? The church's traditional teachings on sex and on justice are come from the one wellspring of our faith. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget that. So you could go both ways, right? Catholic social justice requires penance. Penance requires Catholic social justice, right? One's super traditional, right? I'm going to do penance. I'm going to get holier. I'm going to never eat again. You know, that kind of thing. The other is I'm going to help other people eat, right? These are, these are actually intrinsically related. So let's remember that. So I'm going to try to go from the faith to Catholic social thought in 52 and a half minutes. So I'm going to start by reflecting on the different ways our wills 
and God's wills interact with the world. So when we encounter something good, it is good not because we love it, but it's God makes it good. So when we encounter something good, we go out to reach it in love, right? But it's already good. So our loves don't make things good. They react to the goodness, right? I remember the first time I saw my wife and I thought, wow, that's good. I remember thinking that. You don't think so? Anyway. You guys have never had that kind of? All right, fine. Leave me hanging. I didn't make it that way. Now, God's will is totally different. Sometimes we think about God as a big human in the sky with a beard. He's not. Right? When God loves something, it's not because it's already good. Right? When God loves something, it becomes good. It becomes good. <laughs> it becomes good. So God's, God's love is not like our love. It's not reactive. It's proactive. This will become really important later when we talk about forming our loves according to God's love. We actually have an odd little perverse imitation of God in modernity, well, pretty much always, where we try to become God, where we somehow think our loves make things good, and we don't have anything that governs our love, and somehow, simply because I love it, it becomes good, right? That's to treat us like God, right? God's love makes things good. Our love reacts to the goodness, okay? So our love is a response to the meeting of something good in the classic kind of Amatonis. In a classic kind of Latin, it's called a complacencia with the good, a, a being pleased with. That's what love is. When we see the good, we love it, and that's our kind of unity with the object love. So no matter what we encounter that's good, our love does things to us, whether we like it or not. So it unites us with what we love, person or thing. It makes us go beyond ourselves, so it has a kind of ecstasy, right? In my love, I go beyond myself to meet something else, right? It, it draws me out. It makes me zealous, right? which means because I love that thing or that person, whatever is against that thing or that person, I'm taking it down, right? Like LSU. I'm from out of town. When we love something, we start to change the way we act, right? So we begin to order our activities toward what we love. So if I began to love LSU, this is a counterfactual, Father. If I began to love LSU, I would begin to order my life differently. I might care about wearing purple, <laughs> right? The first time I came here, I went to the store, and I was walking around. I was like, every man in here is wearing purple Something is happening. <laughs> I didn't even know where LSU was, honestly. Totally in some other stratosphere. What is happening? I didn't get the memo. <laughs> the last thing that happens to us when we love something is it wounds us. Right? The Latin's vulneratio, which is a kind of wounding. Which means we become soft toward that which we love. Right? By containing it within ourselves. So when we love something, it unites us to that thing, that person, but that person is also in turn united to us and becomes a part of us in some sense. So we become soft to it, right? Whether that's LSU 
or that's my wife or something else. You can always tell what people love, right? what they're kind of soft to, what they're in touch with. We rejoice and we desire to be with what we love. We tend to rest in what we love. We seek to be with our beloved. So this is what happens. We, we notice something good, right? Don't we, we don't make it that way. We love it, and then that does things to us. Right? Now, we can love persons or things, right? But in some sense, love is always personal. So when I love things, like this cup, I love it for me. I don't love the cup in itself. It's just a black thing, you know, glaze, whatnot. Thank you. I love it for myself. You can love persons, right? I can love other persons, and then I love things for them, right? I love my children, so I love things for them. Here's a time out. I love it for you. <laughs> so you can love persons or things, and those, what love does things similar to you when you love those persons and those things, right? You become zealous. You become ecstatic. You become united. So let's look at that thing when we look at love. It's always personal, but we will something for the other person, right? For myself or for someone else. So let's look a little bit closer at those things we will for each other. So these, the things we will for each other can be individual goods, right? This is mine. I will it for myself. Or they can be what the church calls common goods. And the specific mark of a common good is a good that two people love and act toward together, right? So it's like a common project, a common goal. So in my marriage, my wife and I both love each other. We also love the common project of our marriage, right? And our children, which are common goods. So they're shared. The characteristic mark of a common good is it cannot be divided. It can only be participated in, right? I can't have 50% of a marriage. When it's gone, it's gone. That's it. Right? You can't divide it. We share in it equally, 100%. Right? I'm 100% married. She's 100% married. She means we have an equal share in this common good. Uh, we have lots of, there are lots of common goods. Things we will and love together as kind of common projects. Victory for a team. I'm not going to say who is a common good toward which many people are striving, right? There are, truth is a common good. None of us, it doesn't just perfect one of us, it perfects all of us. You can only participate in it. In it. You can't have 50% of it or something like that. Marriage is a common good. Holiness, right? These are all things, they're goods we love together with other people. These common goods versus an individual good, like my black cup here or my cell phone, which you can have if you want. It's not very nice. The common goods, when we love something together, or we have a common project with other people, are the real basis for friendship or the basis for real friendship. In friendship, what we have is a community of goods, a common goal or project with other people. We love the same things. This is why when you have friends, you look for things in common, 
so you can be friends. You love the same things, right? It's a real basis for friendship. So among friends, because you love the same things, there comes to be a certain kind of equality between friends. So because I love that thing, and my wife loves that thing, we become like each other because when you love something, it does things to you, right? It does all those things I mentioned earlier. So it does that things to those, that person too. And so that person and you begin to look a lot more alike, right? So there's some kind of equality in friendship. And there, on the basis of that equality, you can love the other as yourself, right? There's a real sense that you can love the other as another self because you're sharing in the same goods. You're sharing in the same life. You're willing that good you love together for the other person. And the other person is willing that good for you, right? So in my marriage, right? I will our marriage and everything in it for my wife. She does the same for me. Because we both love that, we become like each other. And then there's this real type of friendship. So we consider the friend, we have a union in friendship, where we consider the other as another self. Because love does things to you, and I love this thing for her, I become more like this thing, and she becomes more like this thing, but I also love it for her, right? My love is personal. And so she makes an impression on me. I am wounded by her love, and she is wounded by my love, not in a bad sense. Well, I mean, sometimes we do wound each other. Sometimes it can get pretty nasty. You know how that is. You know. <laughs> but it, like a good wounding, right, where you love each other and you become soft or vulnerable to the other person, right, where you want to do their will instead of your own, and they want to do your will instead of their own. You rejoice when they rejoice. You are sad when they are sad, right? You are made the same by love, right? That union in turn makes us entrust each other to one. We entrust ourselves to our friends, those with whom we love these common goods. And this is a really important question is who your friends are, right? Real friendship is very rare, extremely rare. You can tell in part who a true friend is because they help you seek the good your, of your common life, the good you're seeking together, and they will correct you if you're not. They will stop you if you're not. That's a mark of a real friend who can correct you, not just to get a jab in, which I do to my wife sometimes, right? It's like, oh yeah, you're this way. And you can just like dig me right in a little deeper. Um, you don't do that? Oh. As my wife says, I got extra original sin. That's what my <laughs> wife says. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right? But would really correct you to draw you back to that common good you love together. And because of this union, because of this sharing in common goods, you seek to be with your friend. This is in part why Christ seeks to be with us in the Eucharist. Because of that love we have for each other, that sharing of goods, he desires to dwell with us. That's what the Eucharist is, friendship. Right? You want to be with your friends. It's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to come hang out. Yeah? All right, we'll just sit. We'll just sit with each other. That's great. Because you want to be with your friends. Okay. So when you love 
You will common goods together, mutually and knowingly. You have friendship. The higher the good, the deeper the friendship. The higher the good, the deeper the friendship. Pleasure and utility are not really great bases for friendship, right? So if you're just friends with someone because they make you feel good, right, that good of feeling is really just your good, isn't it? And if you're friends with someone simply because they're useful to you, like I'm friends with Father Merrick so I can be here, um, <laughs> That's not, <laughs> that's not a real friendship. Why? Because what's useful is I'm really just willing something for myself, right? I haven't made it yet to the point of friendship, which is where I will a real shared good for the other person, not for myself, for myself and the other person, but for the other person, right? And a good that we can both share, utility, pleasure, those are my goods. They're not our goods. So if you want a true friendship, you need a, sh a good or a goal, a project you can both seek and benefit from. Not something that ultimately comes to in here in yourself, like pleasure or utility. Right? Those aren't real friendships. So we'll talk about real friendship in a second. So to bring in a little bit of Catholic social thought here preemptively, the economy is a shared good. The environment is a shared good. Marriage is a shared good. The church is a shared good. Ultimately, our society is a shared good. It's a shared goal and a shared project we all have because we're a part of it. So we're on a team. So the church says, you're on a team, act like it. Right? Stop pretending like you're not on a team. Imagine if a certain football team would, each person would be like, well, I'm just going to seek my own good. And here we go, running this day. Would that work really well? We have nasty names for basketball players who don't pass the ball, right? I don't know any of them. <laughs> I really don't. Ball hogs? Is that it? Is that it? Okay, yes. Ball hogs. Right? Our country. <laughs> Our country is a real shared good. So we need to act like it. There's a common goal there, a common project, because a real kind of unity and a real type of friendship to all members who seek it. There's a real cooperation there and not a mutual seeking of my own benefit, right? In a common good, everyone benefits, right? If my marriage is going well, it's not just good for me, it's good for both of us, right? That's the mark of a shared good, a common good. When it's going well, everyone who has a part of it benefits. So that's the same with the country, right? If you're thinking about the country as a common good, we're all seeking an end or a good together, right? Which is the project of America. And you're a part of it, and I'm a part of it, whether we like it or not. So if it's going well, everyone should do well, right? Everyone should benefit from that because it's a shared good. Okay. You should care more about common goods than private goods. You probably already picked that up, right? But the church has always said that common goods are greater than private goods. Why? Because they perfect more people, right? My marriage perfects two people. This cup perfects one person, not even that person. It's doing a bad job. In our greatest happiness, in our greatest fulfillment, come from our common projects. 
things we seek together, goods we seek together with other people, right? Common goods link my good to your good and make it our good. So there's no competition there. It's not like I get my way or you get my way. It's we are in this together, right? So we need to figure out how this works, right? It's a shared good. And it's the only real way to be a friend. It's the only real way to belong to something, right? We all want to belong to something. In order to belong to others, we must love the same things, right? That's what really brings us together. So common goods, as you notice, they're stacked, right? There's, there's lower common goods, higher common goods, depending on how many people are a part of this project. So they have to be stacked into higher and lower if they're going to remain good. I'm going to do one more dig here. So if you <laughs> so if you don't if you don't have your lower common goods ordered toward your higher common goods, you actually destroy your lower common goods, right? If you love them too much, if you don't will them for higher good. So if you were obsessed with a certain football team, I'm not going to say who, and it were was more important to you than other common projects. Some of you are married. Don't, be, don't love it more than your marriage. That's my marital advice for the night. Your marriage. Your faith. Yes, we're get, I'm getting there, Father. That's way up here, though. That's way up here. Your, right, your job, your local community, your faith. Right. If you love it more than that, you actually destroy the common good you're trying to seek. Right? Because what does LSU football become? If you love it that way, it becomes more than just a game, doesn't it? But in fact, what is it? A game. It's a game, right? So you're not even really loving it by trying to treat it as something, as a higher common good than it is. It is a real common good, and it brings people together. And that's fantastic. But you can't love it more than the higher common goods, or else you don't even get LSU football anymore, right? You don't even get that anymore. Because you're not loving it as it is, which is a game. A true, real, shared, common good, but also a game. That's the last one, I promise. Maybe. I'm a liar. <laughs> so when we think about the shared project of our country, we right when we think about common goods, they have to be stacked into higher and lower in order to remain well-ordered, right? We do this also with our food. If you love food more than you love people, you're going to have some kind of disorder, right? It's true. If you love it too much, you won't even really get the food. The food gets you, right? You become a slave to the food. So our lower common goods, our lower projects, our lower societies have to remain ordered toward higher ones. This is also true of our country, right? If you love your country as the final common good, you will destroy it because it is incapable of inhabiting that spot, right? You will destroy it, and you will not seek it rightly because you will not seek it as, as what it is, an intermediate common good, a very high intermediate common good, but an intermediate common good, right? So where do we order what's the ultimate common good? 
the good beyond all good, the good we, in which we can all share without it diminishing at all, him diminishing at all. Okay, dog, yes? I give it away with this pronoun, so whatever. So in order to reach, the point is, so you, maybe you could say there's kind of an intermediate common good there where the good of our country has to remain ordered to the good of the world, but still, so on, eventually you have to get to God. So to reach any of our lower, lower common goods fully, our teams, our businesses, our social associations, our marriages, we have to love God ultimately. That's the long and the short of it, right? We must be friends with God. So ultimately, the common good of the church, which are the people united around love of God, are your, the kind of ultimate society, right? That's your ultimate context because it's ordered around the ultimate common good, the most shareable good, right? God himself. This is the heart of discipleship, right? So what, what happens when we love God? He does things to us, right? You become united with him, right? We often think of love as a kind of response to a good, and it is, but it's also unity with that good, right? So you become, you become united to God simply because you love him. In other words, you touch God. The classic scholastic way to put this is the object of charity is God. All right, and you think, well, that's neat, right? What they meant by object is something you bump into like this, right? You hit it with your action, which means your love hits God. It touches him, so to speak. And it's a real union between the lover and the beloved, right? That's simple unity with God. What else happens? You become ecstatic, right? Your love for God puts you beyond yourself. You go beyond your own projects, your own idiosyncrasies, and all of that. And you, you reach out to God in both your mind and your will, your passions. You become zealous. Sometimes it's hard to deal with zealous people, but they're good for it. You become zealous, right? Which means anything's contrary to your beloved, you're against it, right? You change the way you do things, right? You start pursuing all things for love of God. And any of you who have undergone conversion know that it changes everything. Because it's the ultimate common good. When we pursue things, we pursue lower for higher, right? And you stack them, right? As I said earlier, you have to. I do this for the sake of that, for the sake of this, for the sake of that, and it terminates somewhere, what you think is that highest common good. When, that, when you put God at that highest place, it changes every other thing you do. Why? Because the ultimate reason why you're doing it all is now love of God and not love of self or love of something else. Honor, pleasure, power, money, those kind of things. And finally, you're wounded by that love of God, right? You become wounded by the divine love, right? We are vulnerable to what we love. It changes us and molds us, as I said. This is why the disciples of Christ look like Christ. Because they've been wounded by his love, right? It changed them. It did things to them. That can be scary. But it'll be okay. And in part, you're wounded by the divine love because you love what your friend loves. 
you see what your friend sees, right? Love helps us do that. It helps us see the world brightly. It helps us see the world brightly. And by love of God, we see the world in its truest respect, right? We see it in its truest respect. And without that love, it is difficult to see the world as it really is. It is difficult. Based on that love of God, you can be tr- the highest and deepest kind of friendship becomes possible, right? It makes us potential friends with at least everyone. Why? Because everyone is at least, in a confused way, seeking God. Why? Because they want perfect happiness. And perfect happiness is caused by having a good which is inexhaustible, which satisfies every one of my desires, which is compatible with every one of my desires, which totally fulfills me, right? That's God. So you're in a common project of seeking God with everyone, right? So there's some kind of friendship there, right? Even if that other person is awfully confused about whether they're seeking God, right? Ask them if any of the finite goods of this world satisfy them. So based on that love of God, and in the church, you have a kind of real community of goods. So God becomes that community of goods you love together. And the shared goods are God himself and divine goods, merits, prayers, virtues. These are the things that people who love God share among each other. They're the things they love that they exchange based on their common love of God, right? And they held fast to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. If we look at the early church, they have these common things they do because they love God, right? Those common activities, those common loves. When we asked about friendship earlier, you said, well, it's based in some sense on common loves, where you love a a thing together. You have a common project, right? The church is a common project, and the project is we love God together. That's what we do. Based on that, you have a kind of union between all those who love God, right? The believing disciples were one heart and one soul. This union of the affections is because you will the same things, right? And that love of God makes some kind of equality because the love of God does things to me and it does things to other people. And then we become like each other and I can love them like I love myself. They are another self. They are another self, right? The believing disciples were one heart and one soul. And therefore, you seek to be with your friends, right? both your human friends and God, right? You want to be with them because you're united to them. And once you're already united, you seek out what they call effective union, right? You, your love for them is a union, but you seek to make it effective. This is why I want to hang out with my wife. It's like, do you want to go do this thing or do you want to go home? It's like, I want to go home. Do you want to do this awesome thing or do you want to hang out with your kids? I just want to hang out with my kids. Like, why would I want to be anywhere else, right? I love them, so I want to be with them. I mean, you're all great, but. (laughs) So, okay, we're coming down now. Love of God and love of neighbor. So when we are wounded by the divine love and become like him, we want to do his will as if it were our own. This is the true and ultimate foundation for Catholic social thought, that we see the world as God sees it, That we love the world as God loves it. When we're wounded by the divine love, we love what God loves. We want what he wants. We see what he sees. Now remember, way back at the beginning when I said God's love is different from our love. 
what he loves comes into being and his love sustains everything in being which means i know for a fact right now without a doubt god loves you if he stopped loving you you would disappear and here you are because i know he loves you right god's love is effective we are his beloved children to ultimately understand Catholic social thought, we have to see each other in that light as God's beloved children. And if his children are suffering, how can we be indifferent if we love him? Right? If our beloved, if our friend has children who are suffering, how can we be indifferent? Right? It's like me. I have some friends who live up the street, the Pedrazas, you might know them. Um, Brian's way cooler than I am. It's as if I encountered Joseph, who's his oldest, who was hungry. It's not just any old person. It's not just any old four-year-old. Right? That's Joseph. That's the son of my beloved. Right? My friend. What do I do? Right? I have to react rightly. So the ultimate foundation of Catholic social thought is that I see the world correctly through love. If we truly love God, or do we truly love God if we do not love our neighbors then? No. The answer is no. It's always been no. We have to confront our own lack of love for God because we don't love our neighbors. Right? This is why in 1 John it says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It does not. Right? Because if I truly love God, and he is my friend, and his beloved child is in need, and I go, whatever, do I love my friend? No, I don't love my friend. Have I been wounded by loving my friend? Am I loving what he loves? Am I seeing the world as he sees it? Am I sharing in the same goods? Nope. Okay, so a little bit more on Catholic social thought. In other words, the classic approach is that love and God and neighbor are ultimately one love. Right? You can't love your neighbor unless you love God. Because in order to love my neighbor, I have to will what is good for my neighbor. And ultimately, that's God. Right? But if I love God, I will love my neighbor. Right? That's an effect of my love for God, of that wounding, of that relationship. So those two lo loves are radically united. That's why Jesus says, well, if you want to be good, you just go love God and neighbor. And we all go, all righty. Super easy. So a little bit about Catholic social thought in more detail. So what I wanted to do there at the beginning is give you the kind of right perspective to see all the particular things that are in Catholic social thought. But I'm going to go into a little bit more of the details now. So Catholic social thought is how we love our neighbors. Right? To live the common good of our country and of God, our common project, is nothing other than to live the gospel in the social sphere, right, in relation to our neighbor. To live love of neighbor fully. Right? And we love our neighbors fully by bringing our characters as Christians into the public square. Remember, you're united to that which you love. So that means if you love God, he goes everywhere you go. Right? By that unity. Bring him into the public square. 
I mean, you always have to be running around yelling God. But by loving what he loves, you bring him with you. So some of the principles. The principles of Catholic social thought are often presented in a relatively shallow way because they're presented divorced from this kind of deeper foundation in love of God, right? So you hear like subsidiarity and everyone's like, woo, get the government out of my stuff, right? Or get the government off my body, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Um, that's not exactly what subsidiarity means. So I want to talk about some of these principles in a little bit more detail, given that background, okay? So the principle of the common good, you can see how important this is now, right? We are in a common project, and anything less falsifies our relationships, right? We're created for communion, from communion, and we're created for communion. And one of our proximate communions, our proximate projects, is the United States. That means we have to recognize that. And to be happy and to do well, we have to have that common good functioning properly. It also means that what's common, that common project of the U.S., and that common goal must remain common. Okay? Common goods must remain common. If they begin only benefiting one of the two parties, some serious abuse is happening. And I don't mean parties as in left or right, but it probably also applies there. So think about my marriage. If everything's going well, both of us benefit. What if I just go in and I say, it's all about me. I'm going to make this living room where it's awesome for toys and stuff, and I'm going to put books everywhere. I'm going to put them all over, right, where no one can sit here, no one can do anything. I don't know what you like about this, Katie, but whatever, right? I'm going to make it about myself. I'm going to take the common, and I'm going to make it mine and it's gonna benefit only me, right? That's a serious abuse because I've made the common individual. It becomes private. This happens with the economy too. When the economy, this is why the church is really worried about a growing gap in difference of wealth between the rich and the poor because what's that look like? That looks like the common good of the economy is benefit only some of those who are participating. Not good, right? That's a common good. So everyone needs to benefit. This is why the environment, it happens with resources. When we take resources and we benefit, we only give them to some, right? When, whereas they're common, right? The environment is common. Water is a common good, for example. This is why the church has opposed efforts in Latin America of multinational corporations to come in and sell people their own water. Why? Because then... I used to have this common good, but I don't have any money, so now I don't have water. How about that, right? To take the common and make it private, so you can only have it if you pay, right? To make it an exclusive good is a serious abuse, right? It's a serious abuse. So you see the common good is behind a lot of what's going on. If the church thinks we're in common projects, we have common loves, which unite us, and which benefit all, okay? The universal destination of good. You'll hear about this in Catholic social thought. The universal destination of good just means that we need to see the world as God sees it, for our love of God. When God created the world, he didn't say, only women under five feet tall get to eat, right? If you're, you're outside of that, I'm sorry. You're out, right? 
When God creates the world, he created enough for all of us, right? He's abundant in his love. The universal destination of goods means that since God created the world for everyone, for the sustenance of all, and it's a shared good, I can have private property, right? The church has always been a defender of private property. This isn't communism. The church thinks communism is a radically inhuman system, right? But the, the resources are common, which means I appropriate them for myself, which is fantastic and good because I can support my family and all those other kinds of things. But if I have more than I need, I need to give it away, right? The church is radical in this, right? The way we think of private property as Americans is it's my stuff. I do what I want with it. The church says, mm -mm, nope. Your stuff is not yours. It's God's, right? It's ultimately his, and he has plans for it that you may not have. And you need to use your stuff for the common good. John Paul II talked about this as socializing your property. He doesn't mean socialism. He doesn't mean communism. He means me through a voluntary will, using my property for the benefit of others and giving away what I can't use to do that. Right? So I have a gym at my house. I know I look like it. <laughs> In the garage. And it's a very nice gym. Free weights. You know, you can turn on the... Um, music and stream and lift heavy things. It's very manly. Um, but it's too much for just me. So I've so tried to socialize it. So if you want a key to come lift in my garage, you're welcome to it. Just give them away. Right? You can come and lift in my garage. It's not going to hurt the stuff. It can be a shared good. Right? I'm making it a shared good because it's too much for just me. I don't have need of this, so I socialize it. So that's the point. You have to use your private property for the benefit of others. And what you can't do that with, and you don't need, you give away. That's pretty radical. Right? Pius XII said we are supposed to give away all superfluous income. Whatever superfluous means, right? It's like, this is totally not superfluous. I need that. <laughs> but the universal destination of God is seeing your goods in their ultimate light. Right? The way God sees them. Subsidiarity. Right? Subsidiarity is a claim that there are multiple common goods stacked in different levels. Right? The claim is that decisions for one common good, right, my family, for example, should be handled within that society between me and my wife or my wife and I. Grammar should be made on that in that society. So subsidiarity says the people who have a stake in the game make the decisions. The higher societies offer subsidium, right? Which means help. Which means higher common goods help lower common goods to flourish in that common good. Right? So the government, the local government, is supposed to help my marriage to be a marriage, to be a good marriage, to help it function well. Right? They're supposed to create the conditions where that can happen. Right? Now, it can be the case that the government should step in and do things to my marriage. And that's if I cannot or I will not do that rightly. So let's say I stop feeding my kids. Right? Tomorrow, Benedict, you don't get to eat. Why? Because your name begins with B. 
and because you weren't a Dominican. <laughs> so you don't get to eat, right? Let's say I do that for a while. Would you think it'd be right if social services came and took the kids away? Yes. Yeah, that would definitely be right, right? Especially if they come to me first and they're like, you got to feed that kid. And I'm like, no, man, that's, no, he wasn't a Dominican. He wasn't a Dominican. Like he's named after someone who wasn't a Dominican. So I'm not going to feed him, right? And they're like, okay, well, we're, we tried to help you. So now we have to, now we have to step in. So subsidiarity isn't about having small government or big government. It's about having higher societies that help lower societies to function well. And if they can't, offer them help. And if that still doesn't work, to step in temporarily to fix it and then step back. Right? There are some things that can only be taken care of on a national level. National security, roads, currencies, those are meant Right? That's what the government's there for, for the common good of all. But there are lower common goods too, right? Different companies, right? Our university is a common good, right? It's a common good. You're all here at the university seeking knowledge. So there's a shared good which unites all of you. I know. Don't you think that's why you're here, right? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> What happens if a higher society oversteps and doesn't just help a lower society or oversteps and overtakes that lower society if, if even if there's nothing going wrong with it? They destroy the common good of that lower society and thereby the common good of the country, right? So the point is, right, the people who have a stake in the game make the decision. Higher societies help. They step in when they're needed. They don't if they're not. So it could be justified to have really big government. Depends on how well lower common goods are functioning. If they're not functioning well, then it's going to have to be taken care of there. But that's going to come with its own problems, right? So if you don't feed the poor in your own community, right, which is your responsibility, a higher society will do it for you, but they'll do it with a lot more bureaucracy and a lot less person, right, person-to-person -person contact. But you didn't do it. You see what I mean? Okay. Solidarity. Well, the principle of participation. Right? The principle of participation is basically a corollary of the common good. Right? Since all are involved in that common good, that have a common goal, they should be, everyone should be able to participate. That's it. That's why the church has opposed certain forms of unfettered capitalism. Because they require a certain amount of non-participation in the economy. Why? Because that has to be surplus labor so that there's competition. So that so some people have to be on the outside. The church says, mm -mm, that's not good. Right? Because it's made a common good into an exclusive good. So we've destroyed the good again. See what I mean? So participation. That's why the church has also supported at least in the, in the modern era, democratic governments, because it gives some sense of participation. Now, the problem with that is we often think of our participation as simply a vote, right? That is a way you participate in our common project, but that is, you cannot reduce participation to that, right? Your local civic associations, your community, your neighborhood, that's your participation, right? Do you do anything there? I don't, it's because I'm a bad person. Solidarity. 
sometimes truth hurts. Solidarity. So solidarity is defined as a firm commitment to commit oneself to the common good and to the others who are participating in that common good. Right? And it's the claim that there's a unity. We're in this together. And there's a unity which is prior to our other interactions. Right? So we should not think of our unity to each other as purely based on economic relationships. So that reduces our unity to some kind of exchange. There's a community that's deeper than the economy. Right? Oftentimes all we have related, all we have in common with each other is the fact that we're all trying to make money. Right? That's a deep lie. There's something there. That community is there prior to the economy, even though we tend to think of ourselves in purely economic terms, which is why if I ask you this question, what do you do? What do I mean? I mean, how do you make money? Right? What if I responded, I love God. I read books. What would you say? They pay you to love God? Yes. <laughs> Solidarity. The claim is that there's a unity there and a common good prior to our other interactions. So we can't think of those other ones as primary, like the economy or money making. There's something there that's deeper. Right? We are our brother's keepers. Didn't go well for Cain, did it? When God asked, hey, where's Abel? And he's like, I don't know. Right? That didn't go well for him. This is also why, since we, the principle of solidarity is undergirds the preferential option for the poor. So because we're in this together, if anyone on my team is not doing well, who am I thinking about first? That person. Right? I want to bring them up. They're in this common project with me, so I'm thinking about them first. That's the preferential option for the poor. This kind of solidarity would also go a long way to healing our racial and economic problems, right? A true friendship, a true solidarity would go so far in healing those problems, right? Because there would be a real exchange of goods between the two people, right? And that brings a lot of healing and unity. Okay, a few more other things, and then I'll end. I have no idea what time it is. How am I doing? I'm doing okay? Cool. Awesome. Fantastic. The family, right? Fundamental principle in Catholic social thought. Why? Because it's the fundamental social unit. It's the lowest common good. Not lowest in the worst sense, but the lowest in the smallest number of people usually participate it unless you're with my wife and I, in which case we attempt to overtake all the other common goods. We have a lot of kids. Um, that's all. <laughs> By sheer numbers. <laughs> it's the fundamental social unit, right? Why? Because it's a school of virtue, right? Where did you learn to love, to forgive, to live with others with whom we disagree? Your family. Why? Because my parents made me share a room with my brothers. Now, I don't care what happens, right? I never got my way. My wife's like, you want this or this? And I'm like, I don't care. Do you want to eat this or that? I don't care. My mom made me eat this. My mom made goulash all the time. I lived, I lived in a Midwestern, heavily German Catholic area, which is kind of an oddity given what happened to the Germans in the 16th century. Um, she made goulash all the time, and I ate it. So now... Whatever. 
I learned. We also, we also ate a lot of wild game, like rabbits. We ate some odd stuff. I ate a raccoon once. Cow tongue. You've never eaten a cow tongue? You can see the taste bud. You can see the taste bud. That's when I lost it. It was good. I was like, Mom, what is this? This is fantastic. She was like, it's cow tongue. And then I looked at the piece of meat, and it's like, it's this huge tongue. It's like this big, you know, and you can see the part where it's attached, and it's coming down, and there are the taste buds on the back. And I was like, no. No. So where did I learn how to be a good father, ultimately, and a good citizen? I learned from my parents, right? That's where we learned. Ecology, right? This has been in, on our minds and hearts as Catholics because Francis has asked it to be on our minds and hearts. And it's the fundamental claim that our relationships are all connected. So my relationship to God, to others, to the environment are ultimately one, just like I talked about earlier, those relationships being connected between love of God and neighbor. Francis wants to say the way the environment's in there too. These are ultimately connected relationships. So if we flourish, we flourish together. And a sign of our screwed up relationships to ourselves is the fact that we have a screwed up relationship with the environment, which when we think of it as just raw stuff with which we can do whatever we want. How do we think about ourselves and our bodies? Do we think of them as gifts or as just stuff that I can do whatever I want with? Right? It's a sign that we're screwed up. Welcome to the club. Religion and the common good. Right? Religion is an essential part of the common good because it keeps the common good of one's country ordered toward higher goods. Right? Remember, if those common goods are not ordered toward higher goods, you would destroy that common good. Without religion, right? It, religion keeps us ordered toward that higher good. That our country is real, it's fantastic, it's wonderful, it's a shared project, but it's not ultimate. And if you treat it as ultimate, you will destroy it and yourself. Grace but that higher common good also helps us with the lower, right? Grace helps us to run a good country. Why? In part because that requires virtue on your part, right? The U.S. needs you to be good. Do it. Go. Finally, contemplation in the common good. A lot of times, many of us don't think of contemplation, right? Going to a monastery. I mean contemplation in a strict sense. And spending all your time in prayer and thinking of God as part of Catholic social thought. It's absolutely part, right? That lie at the beginning that I told you, the traditional and the kind of left-right, that kind of thing, that's all bunk. We need contemplatives in the U.S. We need people who are dedicated to prayer all the time. We need people who are there reminding us that we are not created for work or for money or for any of that stuff, but we're created for God. Right? We need people who are there to remind us of that. So you should consider becoming a Carmelite. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> so that's a little bit. So those the principles of Catholic social thought, subsidiarity, solidarity, participation, the universal destination of goods, solidarity, they all fundamentally come from that claim 
that we learn to see the world rightly because we love God, right? And we see the world rightly when we see that we're involved in common projects, those common goods. So more of my story. So I learned this and my head exploded. This is what my students do. They're like, I didn't understand any of that. And I'm like, cool. So that happened to me. And so I got super involved in undergraduate. I was head of everything, I was doing it all. I was on the social justice committee and I was volunteering at the local prison for youth, right? I met awesome guys there. I learned how to walk some fat ladies. It, it's part of spades. If you get all four queens, you walk the fat ladies. Anyway, they were <laughs> a lot of them were involved in gang activity in Wichita, Kansas. You didn't think there was a lot of gang activity? There is in Wichita, Kansas. Anyway. Um, so I started doing all this stuff. I, I started a soup kitchen visit. We went down to Kansas City and all this stuff. It was crazy. I was, I was on fire. It was great. And there was no sense that I was somehow, I had left the church or I was somehow going to be labeled some way or something. This was a part of the common project of the church. Now what I learned later is that I probably didn't need to do all of those things. What I learned later is to think about the church and her ministries as a real unity and friendship, right? Remember we talked earlier about loving those common goods, especially God, it unites us to each other. There's a real sharing of goods. There's a real unity. That means I don't have to do everything. I don't have to do it all. I'm part of a big family and someone else is doing some stuff too. And I do it through them, right? And they do it through me, what I'm doing. We're on the same team. Not everyone plays the same part. You need contemplatives. You need families. You need people who are out on the front lines. You need it all, right? And it's, a, it's another big lie in the church that we forget that we're united to each other. Like somehow the church's ministry to immigrants and her ministry in defense of the unborn are contrary to each other. No, we're helping each other. I don't have time to do all of that, so I'm going to do this. Thank you for doing that, right? We're on the same team. It's a common project. We can't forget that. So I want to end with this. Why do we not love our neighbors in the public square? Why don't we live Catholic social thought? And I think part of it is ignorance. Part of it is ignorance. It was, it was on my part. I just didn't even know what it was, right? I had no idea. And that's part because anyway. part of it was ignorance of what love demanded but I think a deeper part of it is fear I think a lot of it's fear right we're afraid of being judged to be crazy or associated with the wrong people or to be left or right right we're afraid of being associated with these things so we just don't do it right we're afraid we're afraid of bodily harm Right? If I go out there and I love the poorest of the poor who are on our team, I might put myself in situations that would put me in bodily harm. Right? And I'm afraid. I fear the loss of my own goods. Right? That's huge. Why don't I give away my stuff I don't need? Because I'm afraid. Right? I think, oh, I'm going to need that. I did grow up on a farm, so... The principle is if it's broken, you just stick it in the shed for 
10 years from now when you will throw it in the woods <laughs> because you have something else you need to stick in the shed that's waiting for you to need it later, right? But why, do I, why am I afraid to give away my stuff I don't need? Because I'm afraid. Why am I afraid to love? I, I fear the loss of comfort, my own comfort, my own privilege, my own prestige, my own power. I fear those things, and so I don't do it, right? Most fundamentally, I think we're afraid to love, right? We're afraid of what love will demand of us and to go where love leads us. I'm afraid. You probably are too, right? What we read in Scripture, perfect love casts out all fear. Christ says, be not afraid. Right? That's the number, that's the thing Jesus says more than any other thing in the Bible. Be not afraid. Right? And Pope Benedict says, God gives us the strength to fight and suffer for love of the common good. Because he is our all, our greatest hope. So this is not about your efforts. This is not about my efforts. This is about God's efforts through his grace. Right? To cast out our fear and to give us the courage to love. Right? This is our charism as laity. A lot of people want to say, like, the laity need all these new jobs. No, we have a freaking huge job we're not even doing. Don't give me any more. <laughs> right? The laity is supposed to imbue the secular order with the gospel. Like, we are sucking. Like, no more jobs. Don't make me sacristan. Don't make me reader. I've got stuff to do. Like, nothing else. Jeez. This is our grace as the laity. This is what God wants us to do. To imbue the public square with charity. To take our love of God, and therefore God himself, through that unity, into the public square. Right? We must do this. The world needs us to do this. God's moving us to do this through his grace. Be not afraid. We have to put out into the deep. That's it. 